This is the Retail Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. Place the item in the backing area. We're on that third mega trend where consumers really have taken over the shopping channel because now they're walking into stores a lot more informed. For a lot of brands, especially digital natives, they want to test and see what's working first and then make some educated decisions. We don't hide from the fact that retail is difficult. You know, every day is a challenge, but that excites the customers. They love that. We've got fresh inventory and the doors are open. Welcome to the third episode of the Market Scale Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. I want to start off today by asking you to picture this scene. You get home after a long day of work, you curl up on the couch, and you put on a rerun of Friends, and maybe you have a glass of wine, a beer, a bourbon, a Diet Coke, whatever your vice drink of choice is, and you're catching up on what you've missed on social media throughout the day, and you see a picture that a friend you knew back in high school that you haven't spoken to in years posted on Instagram, and they're wearing this awesome yellow sweater. You take a sip, you decide you have to have that sweater, so you do a quick search, you find it, you put it in the cart, and you buy it. And it's all done within three minutes of seeing the picture. Two days later, when you get home from work, you see a package there on the front porch, and you begin to trace back through the last couple of days, trying to remember what it is that you bought and what could have just been delivered to your house. Then you remember buying that sweater a couple of nights before, and you know before you even pull it out of the box that you're going to send it back. Why did you even buy it in the first place? Yellow isn't your color, man. But something along these lines happens every day, giving retailers headaches. $400 billion worth of headaches. Correspondent Shelby Skirhawk dives into this phenomenon, talks to a man that says he has the solution for retailers, coming up on the first feature on this week's Retail Podcast. You've heard about the dangers of drinking and Amazon shopping, right? That hazy feeling the next morning when you remember ordering something, but forget about it until it shows up on your doorstep courtesy of free two-day shipping. Why did I order this? But with that buyer's remorse, so begins the return journey of a package. Now, there's plenty of reasons why customers return merchandise, but retailers know that there's no busier time for returns than the post-holiday, when much of what went out comes back in. Yeah, it's a fairly large problem. The neighborhood of $400 billion worth of inventory is returned every year. 90 to 95 billion is going to get returned you know, around the holidays alone. That's Eric Moriarty, vice president of B-Stock Solutions. They're one of several solutions for retailers dealing with costly but inevitable returns. According to a 2017 online shopper study, of consumers have shipped returns back to the retailer, which is an increase of seven points from 2016. When that inventory comes back to the retailer, you know, what do they do with it? You know, historically, what retailers used to do is they would take that inventory along with their excess, so, you know, overstock or even damaged goods, and they would put it on a pallet or a truckload and sell it off to a, a large liquidator at really low prices. Now that process has gone online. At a nondescript warehouse in Garland, just outside of Dallas, trucks bring in the unwanted return merchandise from the nation's largest retailers. But instead of going back to the shelves, this returned and liquidated merchandise gets auctioned in online marketplaces. This particular warehouse is sorting merchandise going on liquidation.com. The Maryland-based company has contracts with companies like Amazon, Home Depot, Bed Bath & Beyond, and plenty of others. So what gets returned to those businesses can end up bundled in these mystery boxes and pallets where items are grouped and sold off for much less than their normal retail prices. 
you know, you, you know, you're going to get an ugly sweater this year for Christmas and you're going to return it. And so what the retailers do is when they get all those returns back from the consumers, they place it on, you know, a pallet or in a truckload. And then they used to sell that inventory to a liquidator and the liquidator would offer them pennies on the dollar. And what that liquidator used to do is they would take that inventory in large quantities and break it up into smaller lots and then mark it up and sell it to resellers. Certainly the growth of e-commerce has changed when and how consumers return gifts. And hey, did you know there's an official day for it? The global delivery and logistics company UPS deemed January 3rd as National Returns Day, saying that's the likely day that shipping return packages will spike to its highest point in the season. So what does that boil down to for retailers? Mortiardi of B-Stock says making returns less of a loss and even a small revenue source is the future of making returns better for everybody. What we do is we provide a solution that helps the retailer capture higher prices on that inventory by building a private online auction B2B marketplace where the buyers in those marketplaces are all businesses and they're buying the excess inventory from the retailer to resell it. So it's not a situation where our clients are uh, selling B2C, where they're selling one unit at a time, they're selling in bulk, you know, whether it's a pallet or a truckload or you know, any other <laughs> quantity of inventory. Moriarty is familiar with B2C. Before they founded B-Stock in 2009, they worked at the original online marketplace. The roots of our company at B-Stock, a bunch of us used to work at eBay. And so we've been operating online auction marketplaces uh, for quite a long time. I think what we're, t- what we're doing is leveraging our expertise in marketplaces that we've generated over you know, the past 15, 20 years and applying it to the liquidation uh, industry. You know, ultimately, at the root of our business is we are bringing efficiency to a previously inefficient process, much like we did at eBay when it was a, a more of a B2C uh, or even C2C transaction. Eric, what about the process is so inefficient? What our solution does sort of cut, cuts out that middleman, enables those resellers to bid directly from the retailer, and it does it in an online auction. So it forces them to compete against each other. So ultimately, that competition extracts the highest price that anyone is willing to pay, and each listing sells for the highest price that the market is willing to pay. But does this online auction process slow things down instead of just going directly to that liquidator? You know, when you think about these marketplaces, it's just as easy to accept bids from you know, 5,000 resellers as it is to manually process an offer from, you know, one or two liquidators. So what we are doing at B-Stock is we are continually driving more and more buyers to our clients' marketplaces on an ongoing basis. And because there is more demand in their marketplaces, it enables them to put more volume or velocity uh, through their marketplace. So the impact that that's having having is that it's cleaning out their warehouses. You know, retailers, you know, typically have a problem, especially after the holidays, where their warehouses are, you know, bulging at the seams. What this does is it provides, 
you know, a, a mechanism for their for them to kind of get rid of that inventory without really getting killed on price and do so in a quick manner uh, to keep their warehouses clean and, you know, just the flow of inventory through their business much more smooth. Well, just like liquidation.com that offers this these deals to consumers, is there a possibility that B-Stock would open up to the public? You know, Kirsten, never say never. Uh, but one of the things that we have found is a critical part of our solution is the fact that it, they are private. And, and the reason is one client does business differently than the next, right? These are very large companies. So, so having them all play in one sand, you know, one giant sandbox and forcing them all to comply with one set of rules and regulations uh, is not the the mechanism that that they they prefer uh, or or that optimizes the situation. The one that optimizes is one where each one of them gets to set the rules for their own marketplace. They set the rules for who can bid. What is what is the criteria by which a buyer is approved? And you can imagine in particular categories that is extremely important, particularly in fashion, where they want to have a greater level of control over who is purchasing that inventory and the rules that govern the transactions between them and the buyer base. You know, some of our clients have very strict delabeling requirements. Uh, some of our clients require the inventory to be exported out of the United States. You can in consumer electronics, there are some transactions where the the buyer needs to be R2 certified, which is a certification related to you know data wiping. So there's all different kinds of nuances that are specific to the client. And so that private sort of customized approach we have found is what optimizes but also what they want. And at the end of the day, you know, what we're trying to do at Bstock, and I think what probably everyone is trying to do, is provide a solution that maximizes recovery. For Market Scale Retail, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks to Shelby for that in-depth look there at B-Stock and how retailers can help solve their return problem this holiday season. Coming up next are the Market Scale Retail News Minutes brought to you today by Sam Kingma. Going to take a look at Abercrombie. Maybe you haven't thought about Abercrombie or even said that name in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Well, they're making a bit of a resurgence and Sam's going to tell you why. He's also going to look at the industry overall. Is the arrow pointing up? Is it pointing down? We'll hear it from Sam coming up next in your Market Scale News Minutes. These are your Retail News Minutes, brought to you by MarketScale. Abercrombie has been crowned the biggest comeback in retail this year, according to Business Insider. Last month was its fifth consecutive quarter of positive same-store sales growth, with the company's stock shooting straight up 25% shortly after the news broke. The reason for this drastic revival? A complete change of brand identity. The store opened the blinds, killed the shirtless models that would stand around outside the store, and ditched those god-awful racy shopping bags. All this has seemed to work as Abercrombie, whose targeted demographic was young teens half a decade ago, now has a much better image in the eyes of millennials spending the ages of 18 to 34. 
And that's not all the growth we've seen. In fact, the entire retail sector experienced an unexpected growth at the start of the fourth quarter. The boost in growth mostly rose from retailers that primarily dealt with household furniture, appliances, and equipment. And compared to the month prior, the retail trade sales increased 0.6% in October of this year. Good job, retail. This has been Sam Kingma, and these have been your Market Scale Retail News Minutes. Thanks to Sam Kingma for those Market Scale Retail News Minutes. Coming up for our second feature of the day, it's going to come from Maggie Shin. She's going to take a look at the reasoning behind Walmart's recent acquisition of Art.com. We're suddenly going to be seeing Monet's pop up at your local Walmart. I think that's less than likely, but Gene Munster, the co-founder and managing partner of research-driven venture capital firm Loop Ventures, is going to join the show to explain why this makes sense for Walmart and how this fits into their larger strategy. Hello, and welcome to this retail podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. Walmart recently announced its plans to acquire online art seller Art.com. The acquisition is expected to close early next year for an undisclosed amount. This is hardly the first acquisition for Walmart. The company has been aggressive in its online acquisitions the last several years, acquiring Jet.com, Moose Jaw, and Bare Necessities, to name a few. Here today to discuss Walmart's latest acquisition, along with the retail company's strategy and how it plans to become profitable in a creative space like art, is Gene Munster, managing partner and co-founder at Loop Ventures. Loop Ventures is a research-driven venture capital firm headquartered in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast, Gene. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Gene, I want to discuss first why Walmart's acquisition of Art.com makes sense. So uh, many of you may not know Art.com. It's a a small company that basically does postering and wall art. But the reason it makes sense is that Walmart is building what they call a, a portfolio or a palette of brands, online brands. This is the 11th brand that Walmart has acquired over the past two and a half years. And so this is very consistent with the strategy that they've been undertaking uh, more recently to build out their online presence. And like you just said, yes, I know that your company has written about this before, um, about Walmart's business decisions, its acquisitions. Tell me about how these decisions are positioning the company to compete in today's market? So they're taking uh, a slightly different approach than how Amazon approaches. Walmart's approach is different, obviously, than Amazon. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of want to put the two companies in a perspective that should illuminate uh, their respective approaches and how they are taking aim at each other. Fantastic. Amazon uh, this year will do about 250, 250 billion in revenue. Okay. And uh, of that, it's obviously uh, uh, all online. Um, when you look at Walmart, they're going to do 500, 500 billion in revenue, and about 12 billion of that, so about one tenth of uh, the size of Amazon. Uh, so Walmart business is online. So, and conversely, uh, Amazon's retail business is infinitely behind where Walmart is. They have a $15 billion Whole Foods business compared to uh, Walmart's 
uh, almost 500 billion in, in uh, offline. So what you basically have here is a, uh, they're almost inverse to each other. And the strength that uh, Amazon has online, um, they have an equal strength, uh, Walmart does offline. Mm -hmm. And so they, they both know and recognize the respective opportunities Mm -hmm. And they have a long way to go there. And to accomplish that, you know, for Amazon's case, it's going to take a lot more than buying Whole Foods to accomplish what they want to do in brick and mortar. And in Walmart's case, it's going to require a lot more than acquiring uh, Jet, which was the first, Jet.com was the first big acquisition they did back in August of 16. And so they essentially have laid the groundwork that there's going to be a lot more going on. The announcements we're going to hear out of Amazon are about more at brick and mortar traditional retail. And the announcements we're going to hear from Walmart are going to be about them strengthening their online. Are they trying to take each other out of business, Gene? They're trying to steal each other's business. <laughs> I think ultimately put each other out of business. I would probably say they would rather that the other uh, company did not exist. So I think that that is a understandable goal for them. Okay. I want to talk about how Walmart is operating the online retailers that they've bought so far, Jet.com, Hey Needle, Moose Jaw, and others that you've mentioned. What is their strategy behind operating the companies as standalone sites? And do you see them eventually merging them just into Walmart.com or it, it What's the strategy there? They will likely continue to operate these as standalone sites. And the biggest reason is that it gives them brand where they uh, it allows them to tap into a new market. Typically, if you look at the companies that they've bought, the majority of them, these 11 companies over the last two and a half years, the majority of them have been uh, higher, uh, mid to higher income type of uh target markets, very similar to uh, what Amazon's target is. The average Amazon uh, family has in the U.S. an income of about 85000 Well, the average Walmart family has an uh, average income around 55000 mm -hmm. So I think that by maintaining these brands, you maintain your access to these different demographics that they historically haven't had, these different spending groups that, they, that uh, Walmart hasn't had. So I think that it's uh, likely that they will continue to buy more e-commerce companies and operate them uh, under their their existing brands. I, I wonder, Gene, have you seen any patterns in terms of the online retailers that Walmart is going after? We looked at that and there really isn't uh, beyond the this idea that they tend to be a more affluent customer. Yeah. Beyond that, uh, we haven't picked up any patterns. So with that said, how is Walmart doing in the, online, in the online retail business, in your opinion? And what do you think, you, you mentioned the strategy going forward of just buying more. What can we expect um, in the future? Well, they're not doing well. Uh, Walmart's not. And I, I think that uh, as evidenced by, you know, their online business is still, $12 billion, a tenth of what Amazon's business is. And I think that um, it just, it does, I think, emphasize how much um, Amazon is captured of the market. It's just very difficult 
to compete. Um, but I, I think they, it's a start, I would say. Not doing well, but they're, they're off to, a, well, at least they're making progress. It is a start. And I think uh, ultimately they've said that they want to have 40 brands uh, in, the, in the future. And so we're caught 25% of the way there. On a, another note, since you brought up Amazon, how is Amazon doing in the brick and mortar market? And what can we expect from them, in your opinion, from what you're seeing? So I think uh, they're in a pretty similar uh, position where they're, they're not doing well. They have uh, made more progress, but they still have a long ways to go. And specifically, you know, we talked about the numbers uh, and, and revenue differences. Um, you know, aside from Whole Foods, in the last year, they've talked about adding more stores. Some of these are, they call them the four-star store or, uh, uh, you know, the Amazon Go stores, their bookstores, pop-up stores. It's surprisingly high number. It's uh, over 100 right now, just over 100. But uh, those numbers are minuscule. You know, we're talking about 600 stores when your the ultimate goal is to be closer to 10,000. And so uh, I think they are in a, a, a similar camp uh, as Walmart in the sense that they still have a long way to go. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Gene, and thanks everyone for listening to today's retail podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Maggie Shin. See you next time. Thanks to Maggie Shen and Gene Munster for that look at Walmart and their acquisition of art.com. Really interesting stuff there. Coming up on our final piece for today's episode, it's going to be a news analysis piece. We're going to ask the question, are your employees on autopilot? In the retail industry, experts call it hypnosis, where sales associates fall into routines of average customer service and fail to meaningfully engage with customers. It's a problem when so much of the sales associate job is being automated by AI, but there's an antidote that's borrowed from marketing. Retail marketing expert Ryan McGinnis says that the smart companies focus on internal marketing and make their employees stewards of the company brand. We're going to learn more about that from correspondent Shelby Skirhawk once again, talking to Ryan McGinnis coming up next on the Market Scale Retail Podcast. In a 1929 study called Sleeping with the Eyes Open, scientists theorized that people in monotonous situations tended to enter a sleep-like state without closing their eyes. They likened it to driving on a long, familiar stretch of road. Your brain knows where everything is. It knows what to do. So it stops seeking out for brand new clues and sets into a routine. Retail expert Bob Phibbs says the same thing happens to employees. He calls it retail hypnosis. He writes, those associates don't engage a stranger. They don't discover the shopper. They just clerk a sale. Retail observer and marketing expert Ryan McGinnis says there's a solution. Take a cue from marketing and make sales associates your best brand advocates. I think it's the classic brand story of what do people say about you when you're not in the room? 
So we have that conversation all the time, which is what do people say about our company when we're offline, when they're with their friends at a dinner party? Because a lot of times, uh, especially in retail, you might remember the quality of those those shoes that you just bought, but you probably remember even more and you're willing to share about an experience that you have with an associate or an employee who really made that one level better than your expectation. Ryan, with your expertise, I mean, in the retail field, you understand the challenges that retailers face. And one of those, of course, is being able to encourage your employees, your sales associates to be stewards of the company brand. But that's no easy feat. So where do you start if you're a retailer looking to have maybe an edge over some of the other retailers? What do you do? And what are you looking for in your employees? So I think the signs that uh, some of these employers should look for is, it's kind of what do those experiences look like? One-to-one experience, especially in the store where so much has been talked about of what the future is of the of the in-store associate. A lot more employers are looking to put their your best personalities first. People that they truly believe are the, you know, the human touch of their brand. And so to look for those who might be disengaged or, you know, just helping them with the message to the customer, be helpful first, be a sales associate second, or even be helpful first, be helpful second, uh, and then be on the third side, be a sales associate. So I think the disengagement in the conversation, actually caring about the customer. And then probably second, what is that personality? Do people come back to your store because of a particular person? I think paying attention to those things and how you can help your employees even be set up for success. Maybe it's not a a personality challenge or how they talk to customers, but they don't have the tools internally, even from a culture perspective, uh, to be great at their job. So I think it's kind of being more EQ tuned and, and paying attention to that. Well, EQ, uh, emotional intelligence, that extra thing that that makes interacting with someone so special. I mean, is that the secret sauce or the secret ingredient? And then how does a retailer train their employees and sales associates to embody that? Yeah, I honestly think that it starts from within, quite literally. Um, This is something that is built from the ground up as a culture. People join your company, your brand. They work for you for a reason. They believe in the mission of the company. They they understand what problem you're trying to solve. This is both in retail and in the business world. And so something we don't talk a lot about as marketers in general is internal marketing. We do so much to try to get people into the storefront. We try to get people into our digital storefront, could be our, our website, even in the, in the B2B space. Uh, but most of the time, the way that customers interact with our brand is through those associates. It's through the people uh, that they meet that work for the company. So those who can empower their associates to carry on that message and, and you know make them believe that what they're working for is something that resonates with them on a personal level, motivates them. That's how you get the customers to feel as, like they're buying from a brand that's bigger than just that transaction. It's something that they feel like I think of early days of Lululemon, that culture that they had created meant that you weren't talking to a sales associate, you were talking to somebody who is educating you. They called them educators for a reason because they didn't want to try to sell you on the products in the store. They were just trying to understand your needs better. And that's, I think, the goal of a lot of marketers on the website today, which is uh, we see live chat. We see a lot of these things that are both digital and physical. And at the end of the day, uh, the human approach is not the transaction, it's the experience of what motivates the employees to work for your brand and then how do your customers see that? Is this then the thing that will 
I guess, save retail, so to speak. I mean, when we're talking about this convergence of AI and human interaction, that's a big concern. Yeah. And I, I think that people think a lot about technology, AI, and what are the roles that will be most affected and least affected. And I think that customer service gets a bad rep because we assume that you know, it started with call centers, it goes to live chat, then it goes to fully automated AI. That sounds like a human being, but uh, at the end of the day, it's hard to hard to beat a great associate in person that truly makes you feel that what you're experiencing or buying from them is bigger than just a, a sales number that they have to hit or a quota. So I do think there's a harmonious way for both of those folks to exist, both the non human folks and the real human folks. Um, but I think that, again, it starts with uh, internal, it starts with culture, it starts with really getting people to believe in the mission because in order for you to come across or to actually be a helpful and mission-driven associate, you have to believe that. You have to feel that you're part of something bigger than a pair of shoes or a shirt in the store. And so I do think that that's the, that's the secret there. For Market Scale Retail, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Retail Podcast. We do hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it around with other people in the industry, with your friends, your family, anybody that you think might be interested in this content. And as always, please head over to marketscale.com for more content just like this. We have plenty of podcasts and written content for you to enjoy there on the site. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Market Scale Retail Podcast. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you for listening. Thank you.